Hey, it's Greg. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We have a busy show today. A lot of politics on the show, but it's practical stuff from politicians uh, that give us some practical answers on things. Stephen Lecce is the Minister of Education. We talk about where contract negotiations are with some unions and why the extracurriculars, the sports and clubs are so vital to coming back and and why the need to say it. I think that's an important question. We'll drill down on that. Nate Erskine-Smith will join us as well. Liberal MP from Beaches East York. We'll talk about the Rogers hearing yesterday. He got into it a little bit uh, with Rogers CEO, Tony Staffieri. And we'll talk about how to prevent shortages like this and whether governments can be factors in that particular scenario. And Norm Pasquale on the show as well about... uh, Island Airport, he does not want uh, jets. He does uh, anti-Polyev plan to expand um, Billy Bishop Airport. And we'll chat about that as well as some education issues there. Our 4 for 4 quiz as well. And don't forget tomorrow live on the show, we'll have more Brian Adams tickets to give away if you're so inclined to go see Brian Adams at Scotiabank Arena on October 5th. Feels like a long way away, but it's not. Uh, All on Toronto today, which begins now. Let's bring on Ontario's education minister. He is Stephen Lecce. Stephen, it is great to have you on Toronto today. Once again, I hope your summer's going well. Thanks for making the time for our audience today. Thanks so much, Greg. It's nice to be back. Yeah, it, it, you uh, you had an announcement yesterday, and I think it was comforting uh, to the vast majority of parents to hear that there's an emphasis, not just on making sure that uh, learning is in person this year, but you really wanted to get it out there when it comes to clubs and extracurriculars the things that that kids really thrive on, the kids that kid, the, the things that kids have been without. Why was it so important uh, to make that statement and, and sort of plant that flag in the sand yesterday? I think it's important to lay out an expectation on behalf of students who have borne so much of this pandemic that they want to go back, they want to be with their friends in front of their educators full time without interruption with the full learning experience in place. And yes, that includes extracurriculars, sports, bands, field trips. These things matter. And when we look at the learning of a student, it doesn't just take place from an academic perspective in the classroom. The social, emotional learning, the leadership capacity, the skill sets we're trying to develop in the next generation of thinkers and leaders in Canada, it's premised on giving kids a fulsome learning experience. And that's why I'm setting out a clear expectation for our staff that those experiences must be restored for the benefit of children. I mean, look, we can agree on this. I don't care what your party is or your union member or not. These kids deserve normal. They deserve us all to rise to the challenge. And my message is one of focusing on these children, getting them back on track academically. It's why we announced, Greg, a new tutoring program to really help these kids uh, access uh, learning on reading, writing, and math. We're focusing on job skills and life skills that's going to help them get a job and mental health. We've, we've increased funding by 420%, million, $10 million new for September. It's going to make a difference, and I hope it builds some cautious optimism that we can get these kids back on track. I'm sure you had some uh, added oomph hearing from parents who saw normalcy in June. I went to my own kid's eighth grade graduation. He had a dance afterwards. My 70-plus parents came down um, and were there in person in the gym, and it, it was everything. It meant everything to our family. Um, my my kid's been in, my oldest kid's been in school two years, and he hasn't had any of that yet. I'm sure you've heard from parents that saw how how things felt so real and back to normal in June, and, and you want to keep that keep that train moving forward. Yes, because, Greg, we have put in place massive investments and interventions to reduce risk. We've demonstrated that we can do this. We can work 
and keep these children in school. And by doing so, when we look at what are the outcomes we hope to achieve, it's to get students back on the on academically, get them back on track when it comes to skills of reading, writing, and math, which we know have taken a hit. If we do that, expand tutoring, increase mental health, re-emphasize a curriculum that's focused on life and job skills, if we really make those investments, which we are doing, I do believe we're going to see a lot of happy kids who are just, you know, pleased to be back. I was at a school yesterday in Ajax, a publicly funded school, um, and I met a bunch of kids, part of a summer program that the mm-hmm. province is part of the largest summer learning program in our history, um, part of that learning recovery funding. And it was amazing. I met some of the teachers who said, I have never seen kids literally weeping because they have to go home because it's a half-day summer learning program at noon. So they have lunch and they leave, and they were so sad. And I met the kids, and they like, essentially were saying, you know, can we stay here longer? So mm-hmm. it's a weird world to be in where kids are petitioning the government to stay in school longer, but it's obvious they want to go back. And this government and our premier is making clear our expectation and our commitment to the people of Ontario that we will deliver on that. We will get them back mm-hmm. with every investment in place and keep them there in a stable environment. Stephen Lecce's Minister of Education joining us on Toronto today. I know we've only got three, four minutes here, but I want to ask you, what do you say, what do we do with a teacher who says, despite my, despite the ventilation improvements, despite an N95 mask supply, and despite three or four vaccinations, maybe even despite having COVID already, I don't feel safe. I don't want to teach in the classroom. What do we do? Well, uh, I think uh, those individuals should, sh- should seek an opinion of the chief medical officer of health or their local public health unit, all of whom have said in the past and continue to believe schools have been incredibly safe spaces with ventilation upgrades, 100,000 happy units. We have rapid tests continuing to be provided to those staff and to our kids on a symptomatic basis. We're offering them N95s, as you mentioned, the only province in the nation, the only jurisdiction I'm aware of in this country that is doing so. We have gone above and beyond, and the time now is to remain cautious, but to remain optimistic and to focus on returning to class. We all, as individuals, can reduce our risk. Um, And, of course, with rapid tests, with PPE, with vaccines, with ventilation, with HEPA units, $600 million in mechanical ventilation upgrades, Mm. uh, I think at this point we need to look forward and focus on doing our jobs of serving children, inspiring them, keeping them uh, safe, and really keep them focused on uh, their academic journey. And I know we can do so, and we'll continue, by the way, working closely with Dr. Moore, working closely with the pediatric hospitals, so we, we keep the kids as safe as possible. But look, uh, our focus is on getting them back into in-person learning, and with a $600 million increase in investment for September, I'm very confident that the schools will be positive, safe learning environments that will be normal for these kids to return to. I'm all for the looking forward, and, and that's encouraging, and, and I have been for some time. I'd ask you if, if you were able to look in the rearview mirror and say, was there a time when we closed schools and we should not have? Did we close them all at the right times? Was there a time? Was it January? I mean, did we did we overreact at all? with a school closure period of time in your lens of looking back and saying, hey, listen, nobody's got everything right through all of this. Was there a time we did that? You know, I think what we did in the past is we leaned on to medical advice to guide us. We wanted to be risk averse. Uh, we didn't want to take any chances. We, we didn't know then uh, what we know now. 
Uh, what we know is that it's safe for kids to be in school. We know that there's minimal risk. We know that the vaccines, with the PPE, and of course, with rapid testing, for symptomatic purposes, we reduce risk demonstrably, and we get kids back. And when we look at the cost-benefit of keeping them out versus being into the mental and physical health of children, it is overwhelming now with the evidence we know that there is, it's inexcusable for kids to be out of school. And it is our strong position, the first pillar of our plan to catch up is about getting these kids back, creating stability and normalcy, with some elements of safety, of course, that's absolutely required and necessary, but as normal as possible. And that's why we insist upon it with the, uh, with the tutoring, with the mental health, and of course, with the extra quicker component, I think it could be a great positive year for these kids. It won't be perfect, but it'll be as near normal as we can do it while we're still contending with waves of this pandemic. Mm. And I think a lot of parents just are really excited by the prospect of kids uh, participating in the sports, the clubs, and academic uh, and in their classrooms, I think they really look forward to seeing their kids return with that smile on their face. I know you and I both only have about 45 seconds here. Can you update our audience on contract negotiations with the teachers' unions? Are there some unions you're more ahead of in terms of putting pen to paper than others? Yeah, I mean, we want to get a deal full stop that's fair for the workers and good for kids that keeps them in school. Uh, some of the unions uh, we're meeting with all summer because they made themselves available, which is the right thing to do. And I want to thank those unions who are doing that. There are others, I will note, that have literally said to us, we are not meeting and unavailable until September, uh, which is, of course, when the contracts lapse. So I, 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 my message to everyone is we got to work through the summer to get these deals and provide stability for kids. Uh, you know, there's no there's no time off here. We've got to we've got uh, we've got Ooh. to land and hammer them out so we can just let parents rest easy, not having to deal with this as they do. To be fair, Greg, every three years under every government, and every premier, there's this cyclical pressure and often a withdrawal of service that impacts kids. So I'm suggesting we can't afford that. There's no appetite uh, for that. We will not permit it. Uh, we need to stay at the table get a deal and get the kids back. And that's what I'm working hard to do. What union, I, this is incredibly fair to ask this, what union's not willing to meet with you until September? Who is that? Uh, some of the teacher unions, uh, ETFO, for example, indicated that they will not be available until September. Uh, and others like QP, who are working with us and meeting with us through the summer. Okay. And it's just a really, it's a factual reminder that everyone should be made available to work hard to get a deal because we're available throughout this period. We always have been, we always will be. Because for us, stability is the number one hmm. uh, priority of the government. And I think, frankly, you talk to the members, talk to the educators, they want it too. They want it too. They just want to go back to work. They don't want to deal with this. Um, and so I think we could all agree if we put these kids first, we lean into that, I'm confident we can get a deal. Thanks for the time, uh, Stephen. I greatly appreciate it. I hope you can come back on and update us in August. Th this affects everybody. Uh, and I know, like you said, everybody wants what's fair. Everybody wants a deal. Everybody wants normalcy. Thank you for the time today. Okay, thanks, Greg. Have a good day. You bet. Stephen Lecce is uh, Education Minister for the Province of Ontario. And that's, to me, a little bit of breaking news there, that the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, and maybe they'll respond in kind and say, no, we'll meet. But we're, what are we talking, 37 days away from September, and they don't have time to meet until then? Like, that was just put out there by the minister. If that's not accurate, then Edfo needs to say so. And if it is accurate, then we have to ask questions as to why. Look, I, I, I get the process of this, okay? And I get also some people say, Greg, you're speaking to a politician. Okay, he's saying what he needs to say about extracurriculars. He's trying to get parents on his side. Okay, great. 
I agree that that's a lot of what's happening here, but I'd love to hear from the ETFO and from that union as to why they won't meet in person prior to then. So if you truly believe in the value of getting a deal done, if you are there, part and parcel, for our kids, and you believe also, look, the extracurriculars, some teachers are more into them than others. Some teachers will, you know, coach everything, go on every field trip, be here, be there, and some won't. Some of that's ability, some of that's age, some of them, uh, some of that's are the teachers, uh, some of the older teachers were some of the more active teachers that we had, and some of the ones that had young kids when I went to high school, they just couldn't handle the after school stuff every single day. They couldn't coach football. They couldn't coach, uh, you know, uh, they, they couldn't run the school play, all that stuff. But I honestly, don't ask me, don't ask me to criticize the government, and I'm very critical of them sometimes, and say, hey, they're using our kids as pawns. When you hear about a union that won't meet until September in person, who's using who for what? Yesterday, the Pope's apology got a lot of reaction, understandably so. Cody Grote is assistant professor in the Department of History and Indigenous Studies at Western University, Mohawk, and a band member of Six Nations of the Grand River. Um, and Cody, I think it's important to ask what we were looking for. Um, we were never going to get universal approval or disdain for the Pope's visit or the Pope's apology, what were your observations of the reaction in the indigenous community? There was a lot of criticism levied about the apology in Vatican City because it really placed the blame for the residential school system and for what took place on individual members of the Catholic Church, individual workers of the residential school system. There was a call and a push for a more broad apology that would recognize the ideologies of a church itself as being problematic. We saw a bit more of that language being used in the apology today. One line that's being shared internationally, I've noticed, is when Pope Francis, quote, humbly begs forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against Indigenous peoples, end quote. And that's really a, a more all-encompassing line than what we saw during the apology in the Vatican a few months ago. We this reminds us, I think, again, uh, that this is a massive machine, the global Catholic Church. This is one man. I, I think when you run a country, even if you're president of the United States, you get to inject a bit of your personality into who you are in your office. Prime Minister of Canada. It's really hard to do with this particular job, quote unquote. And uh, and you're kind of a small mouse in a big machine, as I said. It's really interesting when you think of where this particular pope comes from as well. He's from South America, the first pope that's not from Europe. And it's really interesting to think as well that the country he is from was founded on these same principles of uh, you know, Christian colonization that led to the eradication of indigenous cultures and indigenous identities. So him being a pope from a country that had a similar trajectory as well, in my opinion, is also very interesting and significant and something to consider within the context of what you just said. Cody Grote is joining us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Um, was this always going to get mixed reaction in the Indigenous community? There's some people that want the apology. They're relieved that there's an apology. Other people have said, it's not for me. I'm, I'm traveling a different road here. It, it, was it always going to be like that? Definitely. There is never a uniform opinion in, in any group of people in the Indigenous community in Canada. I also think, for instance, we have to look at what this represents. My grandparents attended the Mohawk Institute Residential School, which was run by the Anglican Church of Canada. It wasn't mm -hmm. run by the Catholic Church. So this is an apology 
by the head of the Catholic Church for the role of the Catholic Church in the residential school system. He did speak about Christianity more broadly, about Catholicism more broadly, and its role in the trajectory of Indigenous peoples in Canada. But again, even when we consider that, this is a small portion of the residential school system and of this broader experience. Your grandparents from um, the Mohawk Institute Residential School, your dad, a survivor of the 60s scoop, has been well documented even before the April apology. We were talking a lot about it last spring and summer with the discoveries of residential graves at these schools. If, if you had a conversation with the three of them half decade ago, knowing what you knew and experiencing what they'd experienced, has that sort of changed? Has the lens of what they wanted in 2017 changed in 2022? I think that's a really important question. I do apologize if I get a bit emotional when I touch on yeah. this line of inquiry, but my grandparents uh, died before I was born, but they had never told my father about their experiences in the residential school system. He didn't really even know that they attended until I was in this role, this faculty research role, and I began looking into their experiences themselves. So I learned and was part of that journey with my father. My father died in May a few months ago, so which is which why this is definitely a, a sure. poignant subject for me. And it took him such a long time to understand why his parents were not necessarily good parents for him. And he said that, you know, they were often distant, often cold. And he said when he was in his 70s, you know, he can never uh, forgive his parents for the type of parents that they were. But it took him 70 years to realize the factors that shaped them as parents. And he realized that they might not have shown him love as a child, but they were raised in the residential school system for a decade. They didn't have that love themselves. They didn't understand what it meant to be part of a family unit. So, you know, that's how we see these notions of intergenerational trauma. And my dad had a lot of uh, struggles throughout his own life, being in the foster care system and going back to this biological family that was shaped by the residential school system. And it took him a while to actually you know, embrace these principles of good parenting that I was lucky to have in my own life because of him. Professor Cody Grote uh, joining us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Do you look and say, I want practical things now? Like it's like an apology is one thing. Some things are, um, I wouldn't call them circumstantial, but some things are uh, are for how we feel inside. But there's practical, hardwired stuff, clean drinking water, safe communities. Um, th- there are things that that First Nations communities need that I think we could look, we could look at the Trudeau government, we could look at a way, way back and look at other governments of, of all shapes and sizes and say, they needed to do better in their time. Are there practical things you look at and say, this is a start, this is something, this gave closure to some people, but we've got sort of nuts and bolts, meat and potato stuff we have to do daily that we're not doing right. I think there is a lot of structural societal things that need to be addressed before we, or as part of these uh, processes that we're currently in, but even from the Catholic Church apology, two things stood out to me as tangible actions. It was interesting to me that Pope Francis said no apology is ever sufficient, which he followed up with a call to conduct a serious investigation into the facts of what took place. Now, that's standing out to a lot of people. We had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. Its final report was delivered seven years ago. It's uncertain what he was talking about when he said that there needs to be a serious investigation conducted into what happens. If the Vatican is going to leave that, if this is going to be an international commission, that was really uh, confusing to a lot of people who are listening to this. But one thing as well is the call to action in the TRC called for the Pope to apologize 
for cultural, physical, psychological, and sexual abuse that took place in the residential schools. He did not reference sexual abuse in his apology. That was intentionally excluded from his remarks. And that builds onto a bigger preface. There have been no criminal convictions related to the residential school system. It was a non-judicial inquiry. So as much as we have this apology in place, as much as we have this uh, information in the general public, there still has not been criminal convictions associated with the residential school system. There are some, I know that uh, Nathan Obed, who is the leader of the National Inuit Organization, is calling for the repatriation of some specific perpetrators associated with residential schools in the territories as well, who are still living, who have not been held accountable for their actions. Last thing for you, Cody, does that does that lack of acknowledgement um, of sexual abuse, rampant systemic sexual abuse in some cases, does that hang over the next three or four days? I mean, it's not like he, he you know, quote unquote, scrums with the media and a lot of people get access to him. Um, and there's a lot of filters to get to the Pope, if you will. But to me, people should demand answers of him and, and of people around him as to why that was that, that was left out. I think what we need to know and be aware of is that this speech was extremely vetted. It was probably prepared by a number of individuals, went through a number of revisions. The call to action of the TRC specifically calls for an apology to be made regarding sexual abuse. Um, It not being in there was something that was intentionally done. So I think that it should be something that should be called out and addressed Um, If it's the Canadian Council of Catholic Bishops or if it's the Pope himself, um, there's something hanging there that needs to be addressed. Cody Grote is an associate professor in the Department of History Indigenous Studies program at, uh, at, of course, Western University. Let me just say, just in a 10-minute conversation, um, I, I enjoyed learning so much more. And I would say you've done your father very, very proud. And you've done, your grandparents would be incredibly proud of the things you say, the actions you take, uh, and your opinions. Thank you so much for your time. That means a lot. Thank you. It's great to have Cody uh, Grote on. We'll see where this goes today. Commonwealth Stadium is the venue for a massive, uh, massive mass uh, of 60,000 plus a little later on today. And of course, I'm sure there'll be more subsequent reaction for the, uh, before the Pope moves on to none of it uh, later on uh, in the week. Obviously not stopping in Ontario, making stops in none of it and Quebec before going back to the Vatican. Lots of uh, MPs were busy yesterday and we'll have MPs uh, talking to the Hockey Canada brass today and rightly so. Uh, They were looking into the uh, RCMP issues with uh, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky yesterday, and some were talking um, to the Rogers executives yesterday, and also, rightly so, um, given that uh, Tony Staffieri was um, on site. They were talking about the widespread outage that left a lot of customers, millions of Canadians, uh, without wireless, and this isn't simply, you know, giving 15, 20% back. A lot of Ontarians and a lot of us uh, and our friends and colleagues and family members lost a lot of lost money because they couldn't operate their business, independent or otherwise, on that particular Friday and some of that Saturday morning. Uh, Nate Erskine Smith is going to join us in a sec, but this was his exchange yesterday with Rogers CEO Tony Staffieri. Isn't the concentration of customers in one particular co- company a challenge to resilience in and of itself? We work every day in a very competitive environment. And we work hard to bring the best value for money for our customers and for Canadians. It's in our interest to do so. They have alternative and they have choice. Wait, wait, so, so, wait, wait, so wait, you think Canadians have alternative and choice in this marketplace? 
Very much so. Um, and you're saying that with a straight face? The face was relatively straight. I can assure you I watched it. Nathaniel Erskine Smith joins us now, liberal MP for Beaches East York. No matter who it is, I, I think people appreciate what you did yesterday because if someone is obfuscating and, and not answering a direct question, uh, it, it's going to lend to an exchange like that. Did, did you feel Mr. Staffieri just was not answering the actual questions that you had for him? He definitely came very rehearsed, I would say. Uh, a lot of money has gone into the PR coordination to soften the blow and the, and the outrage from their misstep and and the major impact on Canadians' lives. And so, yeah, I think he showed up yesterday to try and earn his twenty-seven million bucks with the the, the <laughs> maybe the most amount of rehearsal I've seen from any witness. Some of the frustration for customers that day, uh, Nate, was just not getting the update. I think we know. Life will happen sometimes. Technology will let us down. We'll get we'll get an email about a data breach with an account we have or or our, our checking account or a credit card. That will happen. But I think it was the lack of updates in real time all day long and all evening long on that Friday going into a weekend. Never mind. Again, as I said, like businesses just not being able to operate and make money and, and pay their employees. Um, but it was it was just the lack of transparency from Rogers throughout the day. What's what's the latest? There was there's very little of that on that Friday. Very little of that on that Friday, and that was what we heard from some expert witnesses actually, and and even from the CRDC chair, who I don't often agree with, but they all made the point that the communication had to have been much better. And a number of experts said there should be clear rules around communication response in a crisis like that, and obligations on companies to respond. And it shouldn't take the government reaching out to the company. The company should be proactively reaching out not only to the government, not only to the CRDC, but explaining itself to Canadians and customers affected. The, the other piece of this around voluntary versus mandatory, the company has now made it clear that they're going to compensate customers five days. And there's an open question there too, as to what should the, should that be a voluntary situation where the company assesses the, sort of the minimum amount that it can pay out to make the problem go away? Or the, the minister yesterday liken this to an airline incident and if that same incident happened with an airline there's an air passenger bill of rights and there's mandatory compensation set out at law yeah i wondered about that i wondered where that went because i noticed um we had a lot going on in the city that day uh there were two concerts that went ahead roger waters was playing Scotiabank arena um keith urban was playing uh budweiser stage outdoors but the weekend obviously had sold out roger center forty-two thousand tickets probably not cheap tickets at all and they couldn't have that concert. And and I heard, you know, I read in the paper the next day, you probably did too, of uh, people that had flown in from Edmonton to see the concert, booked hotel exactly. rooms exactly. And, and made travel. And they didn't find out until about 90 minutes before the show. So, you know, even if it's, if it's as minuscule as, as paying the babysitter seven hours, you, you had a lot of people in our city on the hook for something that the, the company with more transparency could have avoided. And I think you're right to say mistakes will happen along the way, but what Canadians expect is transparency and communication and then fair compensation when, when those mistakes do happen. And then the, the next question is, how do we make sure that something like this doesn't happen again? There's obviously, you know, the CEO came yesterday to talk about the $250 million they're going to put in to build redundancies and to separate networks and to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. But I think the other two lessons that we've learned here, one, Obviously, and this is relearning this, but this is clearly an essential service for so many. You've talked about businesses, and it's a lifeline for them to, to conduct their business, 911 calls. There are any number of 
obvious way is that this is an essential service. And then the second piece of this is we've we've built this system over the last number of years in maybe the most inefficient way. It's obviously incredibly efficient for profit for these companies, but for affordability for Canadians and obviously for the resilience of the network, there are major risks and it's inadequate. Nate Erskine-Smith is our guest, Liberal MP uh, from Beaches East York, joining us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Um, what are your biggest concerns about the Rogers-Shaw merger? When you ask that question about competition um, and, and choice, there is more than when we were younger. Our parents just, they had Bell Canada. They had one TV provider. They had one phone provider. Whatever it was, whatever the cost increase was, whatever the service was, they had to take it. So there is a little bit more, but we're nothing like other first world countries in terms of choice. And, and we obviously always see those stats that we pay more for cell phone uh, bills than than people in those particular countries. Way, way more per capita. What's your biggest concern about the merger? We pay more and we get less. And the biggest concern about the merger is that you have, in the case of Freedom Mobile, but generally in Shaw, you have a fourth competitor that has helped drive down costs where it is competing with the big three. And we've seen in, we had the CRTC chair just yesterday come and say, Quebec has the lowest mobile prices in Canada because they have a strong regional competitor. And you've also seen governments subsidize Spectrum Auction to try to build out these regional competitors. And when you have a proposed merger like this, it is on the backs of those subsidies and it's going to profit Rogers ultimately at the expense of consumers and, and Canadians and, and really at the expense of service. So I would say when I look at this, uh, it's impossible in a serious country that took, if, in a country that took competition seriously, we wouldn't even be having a conversation about a Rogers Shaw merger. It would be, it would be mm -hmm. done from the get go. Nate Erskine Smith, our guest. We got a few minutes left now. I know you won't be on the committee today for it, but some of your your party colleagues will be, and and some conservative NDP and Bloc MPs will be as well. What are you looking for from Hockey Canada? I, I praised uh, Pascal Saint Ange, the Minister of Sport, for freezing that funding really within the snap of a finger. She heard the explanations. She didn't think there was accountability. She didn't think there was transparency. These are things I know you believe in. These are things we're talking about on a regular basis. What are you hoping to hear from these executives and this organization today to get their funding back from the government or to even get corporate support back? Well, I think you're right to say it's important how quickly the government's acted. And I think this is another issue, just like yesterday, where this is not a partisan issue. You've got colleagues from the Conservative Party, the NDP and the Liberal Party that are going to come across party lines and hopefully bring some of that accountability that has been lacking. And ultimately, what you want to see is, and, and we've seen this in, in our own parliamentary culture, right, where decades ago, and, and, and even more recently, you, you hear about a whisper network of, of young women on the Hill who know who to avoid and, 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 and make sure that they're communicating with one another to keep one another safe. As that exists is necessary, but obviously unacceptable. And so you need culture change in all organizations, including Hockey Canada, to stamp this this you know, you know this bullshit out, and it's absolutely unacceptable. We, we need to make sure everyone feels safe and is in a safe environment. 
Nate, thanks so much for the time today. I want to follow up when we uh, when we learn more about it. And I know we'll get to talk a couple weeks from now. And let's see where those hearings go. Let's see if we can create some positive change for uh, for my kids, your kids, everybody else, and, and and these coaches as well that want to step in and and be respected and and trusted by parents when we uh, when exactly. we send whether it's whether it's teenagers or whether it's nine year olds on a on a on a hockey road trip. We want to know that that they're safe and that and that the adults in the room have their back. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Take care. Nate Erskine-Smith uh, joining us, MP from Beaches East York. Normandy Pasquale is a TCDSB trustee in Ward 9, uh, and he joins us now for a conversation about a few uh, such issues. It's great to have you on, Norm. Uh, last time you were on, you were you had it with the Blue Jays. They were complaining about active team. I mean, I, have you boycotted? I hope, I hope you're not boycotting the team the rest of the summer. No, Greg, I, I, and what a pleasure to be on my favorite morning show. But, um, you know, I, I've, I've gone completely, I, I, I've fallen right back in love with the Blue Jays. <laughs> really loved watching them thump Boston 28 to 5 the other night. That was something. Um, all right. So I don't know if you caught much of Stephen Lecce. He's been making the rounds, so not just on our show, but others. And he was mm-hmm. out yesterday saying, um, we need extracurriculars. We need kids to be experiencing some of those those benefits beyond the classroom learning. So extracurricular sports and clubs have to be offered. You'd remember high school and, and how much those things meant to mm-hmm. us when we were in high school. Can we do this? Is there? Can we move away from politics and say there's... It's tough to disagree with Stephen Lecce. We need these things. I agree with Minister Lecce's point. I don't agree with his delivery. Um, in, in education, we're more in the goodwill business where, um, you know, we establish good relationships with teachers who are in a vocation and a calling where they love their students and they do want to deliver these programs. But I, I just wouldn't deliver it in a way where, like, you must do this because I find that nobody reacts very well to that. And in a sense, also, I feel like it's a bit of negotiation in public. Haven't um, teachers, it, you know, haven't teachers a- demanded things that they want for classrooms, whether it's HEPA filters, masks, rapid tests? Haven't those been demands and not requests? Well, I've called for those as well because we want to keep our classes safe and open. Like the most important thing in the world is to ensure that our students are in the classroom and learning where they're going to do the, where they're going to accomplish the best and achieve the most. So those are calls for safety. And, you know, in in terms of extracurriculars, you know, there are, there are some ways to mitigate, like we, we can play sports outside, we can play them in large gyms. Um, you know, we and you know, local pub- public health units will take that direction from the Minister of Education and ensure they can make it as safe as possible. But I, I just like to uh, underscore again, like, you know, we are in the goodwill business and we shouldn't making demands like this. I, I just don't think it lands very well with anyone. Norm Deep Squally, our guest. I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, TCDSB Trustee Ward 9. Now I'll make the point to counterbalance. Uh, we, we live where we live and we can play sports outside for about two and a half months in the fall and about two and a half months in the spring. Unless unless we get a big broomball league going, we can't play sports or take a lot of cultural field trips outdoors from December through most of February. Norm, we know that, right? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, we could get used to being outside more than we have as, as Torontonians. There are outdoor schools that operate in northern Ontario. And we have quite a few schools now that really put a heavy focus on outdoor learning year round. Um, You know, that said, you know, we can play gyms, we we can play sports in big, generally well ventilated gyms. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have air purifiers now, usually multiple air purifiers in our gyms. Um, And, you know, these are things that students just love the extracurriculars. Like my, my daughter and my son, they both did track and field. 
yeah. uh, in, in this past, uh, this past year. And, you know, with teachers who really love to deliver that and they do it with a passion for students and, you know, it just, it, it's a calling that they do and, and they, they love to do these extracurriculars. I, I would just say, you know, again, that we're in the goodwill business and making mm-hmm. demands like that. Uh, and, and I do agree. I, I want to see those extracurriculars come back. I want to. Uh, I definitely want to spend some time on uh, on No Jets To. I want to talk about uh, what what Pierre Polyev said on our show Friday and what he said Thursday in his scrum. But but let's stay with schools for just a minute here and talk about the the notion that look, it's I I, I find universal language and putting people in boxes. We're doing this right now. Well, um, you know, members of the Catholic Church feel this way. Members of the Indigenous community feel this way, and we do that sometimes with teachers. The teachers want this. The teachers want that. Teachers have a have a wide variance of who they are, what they believe in, how their politics roll, how their social lives roll. But I got to believe, Norm, the majority of teachers you talk to, if we're going to put them in the collective instead of making them individuals, must feel two things. One, that that in-person learning experience, they're ready for it. They're ready to take it on. And they must want negotiations to move quickly, swiftly and not have this lingering by late August, early September. They must want a deal to secure their future as well as kids being in the class. Yeah, I think everybody wants that normalcy of being back back in school and, and you know, things are going back to a relative normal. Like we have, we're able to vaccinate now every single student that is in school, which is a, a huge relief. Um, I think that does have some effect on um, the spread and, and the severity of illness. So things are getting safer and, you know, probably I, I don't want to like, you know, I, I think they want to make sure that they sign a deal that um, is fair and, you know, recognizes kind of the climate we're in with things like inflation and um, other issues that have come up during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would think that they want to ha- secure a, a good deal because we're talking about a four year agreement here. So they, I, I don't know if they really want to rush into a deal. Um, but you know, if, if there's an, an offer that's really, really good, then who knows, who knows? Um, the one as- aspect here, and I got about a minute and a half. Can you stay through the news update and, and do a little more on, uh, on the jets on the other side? Cause I know it's something you want to talk about. Can it you would do be that? my pleasure. Great. Well, well let me Absolutely. ask. Awesome. Let me ask you about, um, uptake, uh, because we were at a point last year where we talked about for sports, especially and for indoor sports, kids needed two shots of the vaccine. It was a platform of Steven Del Duca's that there'd be mandated vaccines, how do you feel about unvaccinated kids back in the classroom? Um, I don't know that we can mandate our way out of uh, spread and infection. Of course, I agree that the vaccines help prevent severity of illness, but there's going to be unvaccinated kids in classrooms this year or that have let their vaccines wane. And that wouldn't have been the case 12 months ago. How do we feel about that? You know, it really, it's about getting vaccinated as a society. Like, you know, we've done such an incredible job in Toronto. I think we're, we're upwards of 90% vaccination rate, uh, 18 plus. And, and even, even the rate at 12 and above is really high. So, mm. I mean, it, it, that's more what matters rather than an individual student. Like, how have we vaccinated as a society? And thanks to the great work of people like Toronto Public Health, we, you know, we are very well vaccinated here in Toronto. And, and that really brings like um, a high level of, of calm and happiness for me. We're speaking with Norm D. Pasquale, uh, who's joining us, of course, uh, Catholic uh, District School Board Ward 9 trustee and the chair of No Jets T.O. And and I know uh, No Jets T.O., you, you uh, got some prominence because it, it gave you a chance to sort of uh, push back on a proposal from CPC candidate Pierre Polyev about what he would like 
a por- uh, porter, in essence, and, and some other airlines to do, and what he wants Billy Bishop Airport to be. Norm, what did you think of, of his initial suggestion that the runway be expanded? What's the biggest issue you and, and the organization, No Jets TO, has with it? Well, I, I can't believe seven years later, after we won our fight in 2015, that uh, Pierre Polyev uh, appears on our waterfront and wants to pave the lake. Um, you, you know, the, the, he doesn't want to pave the whole lake, by the way. It's about another 200 meters, <laughs> but who's counting? It's, it's, it's paving the lake and we don't, we don't have a whole lot in that inner Harbor. It's a bit like the 401, but for boats, when we talk about the inner Harbor. So as we pave the lake more, we have to increase what's called the Marine exclusion zone, which takes boaters even further out from the airport for safety. Um, and you know, the field just continues to grow. Uh, really, the bigger issues, like in 2015, um, it, it was a different sort of situation. Now we have the Union Pearson Express that gets you from Union to Pearson in 25 minutes. Um, you know, we have a revitalized waterfront that's brought us $3.2 billion in ROI, um, including hundreds of millions of dollars of tax dollars to all different levels of government. Um, and and we're, we're starting to see a vision for the waterfront that makes sense 50 years, 100 years out, where it reindustrializing our, our waterfront is completely incompatible with that. Um, you know, we have the Portlands, which is opening up in about two years, 80 hectares of new land, affordable housing, film studios, which would have to change if this mm. jet proposal were to come through because jets, that, that's in the landing path of the jets and all of the buildings there will need to get a haircut. And uh, if anybody has seen my head, I haven't had a haircut. No, Norm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but, but the what the one thing I'd say is, look, I think we've all all of us who've flown out of Billy Bishop enjoy the convenience of it, no doubt about it. We would we probably comparison shop and we think if I'm going to go to Boston, if I'm going to go to Chicago, I can go into Midway and not O'Hare, and I don't have to truck it out to Pearson. And they have expanded Porter since they've been there has expanded expanded their destinations a ton to where now you can go to LAX. So it is, have you noticed busier traffic there? Do you notice there's, there's just a lot more volume of planes and foot traffic and parking down by, by the airport? Like, like we have expanded our use of the airport a lot in those seven years you reference. Yeah. You kind of have to think about the mode of travel though. Like we're talking about uh, short haul trips um, a lot of people who are using that, um, you know, business folks are using that as their flying bus, as they like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, maybe weekend trips. So you're not bringing like the family in an SUV with like 20 pieces of luggage. In some people, people are walking there, they're cycling there, they're taking an Uber there. Like, it, it's just the, the traffic impact on short for short haul f- flights is a little different than what would happen if they started going to vacation destinations where everybody's going to be coming in a giant SUV with the whole family with 10 pieces of luggage. It's just a whole different uh, travel profile. Is there, so is there a middle ground? Is there a conversation to have that um, involves a, a, a mild expansion? I, I think we'd agree that easing what the nightmarish circumstances are at Pearson would be a positive. And by the way, they'll improve organically over time. I'm probably convinced of that. You're probably convinced of that. But is there a middle ground to have a conversation where, like I said to, to Pierre, even on Friday, I don't want jumbo jets taken off at 1 a.m. and and 5:45 a.m. downtown. You know, 20 hours a day. But I but I wonder if there's somewhere we can meet in the middle. Do you think there is or not at all? Honestly, I think we've met in the middle right now. Um, okay. You know, the airport is 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 fairly busy. It flies turboprops. It, it takes people where they'd like to go in, in most kind of North American destinations. And, and people people like that airport as it is. Um, and, and it works quite well for what it does. Um, I just think people, anybody who's a proponent of expansion isn't thinking through 
um, sort of the passenger type or profile that's going to go to the airport for those vacation destinations. You know, it, rather than being able to get through real quick and onto your airplane, there's going to be delays, you know, maybe not quite to a Pearson level, but, you know, approaching it. <laughs> it just makes things much more complicated, more time consuming when you're going to va- vacation destinations rather than, you know, your, your flying bus for your business. It's since, just a totally different passenger profile. Since we're talking waterfront, I'm driving on Lakeshore uh, trying to find a place to park on Saturday evening <laughs> for uh, for Toronto FC. And I'm thinking Ontario place. We know that there's plans coming. What's your theory as to why we let that go so bad for so long, given what it was in the 80s and most of the 90s? How did it get to the point where we just we just either stopped caring about it, funding about it, and we almost just pretended it didn't exist uh, outside of the concert venues? It's um, it, it became a shell of what it once was. And that's like 15, 16 years ago. How'd that happen? Yeah, you know, mistakes were made like the Molson Amphitheater uh, basically tore Ontario Place in half. So you really couldn't get from one end to the other without kind of doing this giant circle around the amphitheater. Um, and, and, you know, then the, you know, the liberal government closed it down without like a cohesive plan for what was next. Um, they started to piecemeal kind of upgrade some areas and started to develop a plan, but then they, they came out of office. And now you have all this land sitting with no plan, no cohesive plan between Ontario Place and Exhibition. So whenever there's not a plan, um, you know, that's kind of a vacuum and people want to fill that vacuum. Uh, so, you know, there, there should have been a plan for what was next when the thing was closed down in the first place. Hey, Norm, uh, thanks. For, by the way, I noticed from your Twitter account, you're out there just like the rest of us are looking uh, to run into Arnold Schwarzenegger at a crosswalk while on a bike. <laughs> so I'm waiting for that selfie. you got to stop him and tell him tell him who you are. And if you can put him on a cell phone and get him on Toronto Today, your favorite morning show, even more like you got a friend for life if you do that. And I think we owe you dinner if you can get uh, the Terminator on our show. So I know you if anyone hey. can do it in, in our city, you can. I'm going to find him, and we're both going to get in the chopper. Not as interested in Tom Arnold, but I'll take Schwarzenegger. I think there's, you know, there's A-listers and D-listers, and we'll take, uh, we'll take what we can get, Norm. We love having our conversations with you. Thanks so much for the time today. Always a pleasure, Greg. Norm Deep Squally uh, joining us on Toronto Today. Thanks a lot for listening to Toronto Today. Back with a live show tomorrow on Wednesday between 5.30 and 9. Those Brian Adams tickets are up for grabs and we'll get you all the latest uh, from the Pope's current tour, all the reaction and the opinion and the emotion of it uh, on Toronto Today tomorrow morning. Thanks again for listening.